Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. On DAB, online, on the app, and on your smart speaker, this is My Sporting Life on Talk Sports. This is My Sporting Life, and I'm Paul Coit, and with us today, one of this country's best-known and most enigmatic rugby players. Was the youngest Wasp ever to make his debut in the Premiership. He won a Heineken Cup final and a Premiership final before then playing in France and Japan, New Zealand, and then back to England with Wasps and finishing his career with Northampton Saints. Represented England 77 times, playing in two World Cups, British and Irish line on the 2017 drawn series to New Zealand. And after he'd retired, an MMA fighter, a DJ, TV personality, podcaster, successful author, and no stranger to controversy with his sporting life, James Haskell. Well, you've got such a good, powerful radio voice. <laughs> I love it. It's it's my job. It's I could say the good. same thing no. about you when you're playing rugby. Uh, yeah, I, well, I was about to say, if you think I've got a good radio voice, you and I would both be lying, because I listen to myself back sometimes. I'm like, oh, goodness. Oh, come on. But you've got great. It's very powerful. Oh, I quite like it. come on. If you were listening to that voice, you imagine you were like sort of eight foot tall, white tuxedo. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I love well, it. Well, you've got the height right. It's yeah. just, it's just <laughs> the uh, clothing. <laughs> Thing is, that's the beauty of medium of radio is yeah, that yeah. you could be anything. Well, you were born on the 2nd of April 1985. James, can you give us a little idea of what it was like growing up and uh, a little bit about your family as well? Yeah, well, f- well, firstly, I was actually due to be born on April the 1st, but my mum was like, absolutely not. Is, um, is that yeah, right? Yeah, yeah, she crossed her legs and said, <laughs> no. Um, so, yeah, April Fool's baby with my personality would, would not, have been, uh, not have been great. I mean, I was very lucky. Um, you know, my parents are still together. I was... Had a very good childhood. Um, I sort of wanted for nothing, really, um, and kind of almost describe it as a privileged kind of, of, of background. And, and actually, it was interesting enough because my, my first sort of sojourn into kind of a proper rugby, um, when I went all I well, did all the, the trials for England under 16s, went through the horrific county and school system that mm. takes about six months to achieve, is, um, is enough to put you off for life. And actually got all the way to the end and I didn't get in. And that disappointment was my first sort of real disappointment. You know, like my, my parents sort of worked above and beyond to pay for anything that we wanted and stuff to their detriment and their financial sort of um, well-being. But, you know, I was okay. I didn't really know about hardship in any way. And, and obviously everything I say is relative to me. You know, mm. people listen to go, you don't know anything. But you can only talk about the context that you know. And... Um, yeah, you know, that kind of that moment was really sort of seminal in everything I did because it, I got there, I didn't get in, I was told I didn't get in, and then I was left with that reality of like, well, why didn't I get in? I was like, sure. well, you didn't put all the extra work and you didn't do what you were supposed to do. You didn't, you know, you didn't dedicate yourself. And my dad said to me at the time, look, you can either 
see it as um, a disappointment and you can just play rugby for fun and we can leave it or you can go away work harder than you ever worked go back trial for the England under 18s and, and see what you can do and, and that journey um, you know with me training with someone three times a week and the dedication and focus that it took set me up on a journey to where I am now and all the things you've listed you know they, there's a great um, saying is a jack of all trades is a master of none but oftentimes better than a master of one there we are. And kind of that mindset of, you know, dedication of focus. If you put the work, hard work in, if you ask for help, if you, um, you know, reach out to other people, if you are constantly on a journey of self-development, if you don't think you've made it, you will achieve what you want to do and you'll have a rich life. And, and honestly, if I was to die this afternoon, I'd pretty much say that I've had a go at everything. You couldn't, you, could, you know, for all my faults, the fact that I'm a, I'm a hugely acquired taste, I've I've had a good go at it, and I've got I've got no regrets. Um, and that for me was born out of that moment because it showed me that if you applied the lessons of things I've talked about, dedication, focus, hard work, having a plan, um, wanting to get better, you can pretty much go into most things. And you know, like DJing, MMA, book writing, podcasting. I've got a production company. You've got all these kind of different things. Yeah, and I've done it all with a smile on my face. While upsetting everybody who's like you can't you shouldn't like that you can't have that much fun how have you done this this is awful and and i've got a wonderful tattoo on my arm that says the best revenge is living well i think that that's a great lesson for life especially in the world of social media and finger pointing and everyone looking over everyone else's business and going, you can't do that you shouldn't do that this is how we're going to do it it's like listen don't worry about anyone else just do you and that is offensive enough to them. Well, look, let, let, let's keep let's go back a bit because yeah. we, we, we I went started, ahead. I went ahead. We, we started. I mean, you pretty much finished the show oh, yeah, now, and we're only coming. five minutes in. <laughs> so we needed. There's a couple of life lessons. Just cherry pick those, and we'll just thank carry you on. so much yeah. for that. But when you were a kid, was there? There's obviously a talent there. When did you? When you were at school? When was there a decision to make whether you think I'm going to do this or I'm going to become a professional rugby player? Because you know you were very young when you started playing for Watford. Yeah, I, th- I think. Um, but because I had very supportive parents who who always put me put me first, and it was very much the Haskells against the world, mm. rightly and wrongly. Subsequently, later in life, I've realised that the Haskell way is not always the right way. Yeah. But when you're younger, my parents were very much like that. But they they always provided the opportunity, but they weren't like you know pageant mothers from mm. America, like trying to relive their youth yeah. through their child or forcing me to do it. They just provide the opportunity. If I moaned or whined or said I don't like it don't want to do it they would be like listen just give it a try yeah. you know, it's like with food I don't like it have you ever eaten it no sure. well give it a try see how you get on same thing with, with, with sport look I've, I've seen this but you give it another go and they were supportive like that never forced me to do anything and then, and then it was me basically getting into that mindset of I would and it was as simple as I started lifting weights and I saw change and it's amazing. Once you see change, you find something's worthwhile. You, you get onto it, and it's a lot for a lot of people in a lot of areas. It's they give up before they see the benefit. But if you can stick with something and get over that hump, more often than not, you feel the benefit. And it doesn't matter whether it's learning a language, whether it's training, whether it's a relationship. If you can stick with it and, and get over it, it makes a huge difference. And for me, that was that was very much the case with um, with this. And I and I you know I started to lift weights, and I could when I first started training. I couldn't even lift the bar up, you know, 20 kg mm. bar bench press. I I was tall and skinny. I started to develop a six pack. I started to be able to lift heavier weights. I started to, people started to notice, compliment. I mean, it didn't work with girls. I mean, I was, unfortunately, at my time at, at Wellington, it coincided. I mean, I've always had a bit of like a body like Baywatch face like Crime Watch, but they, <laughs> they, they, in that period of time, they, 
it was sort of they had the anti-establishment thing, anti-training, anti-diet. It was yeah, cooler yeah. to be smoking in the bushes. Of course it was. You know, be sort of listening to, you know, Nirvana and being sort of quite edgy, whereas being fit and healthy. I mean, I remember one time I took a shirt off and a girl went, oh, it looks like you're made of plastic. I was like, is that not a good thing? And she was like, no. So I, unfortunately, I've always been slow. How I miss those days. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Extensive six pack, six pack and huge biceps. So that was kind of quite... Um, it was weird for me. So, so those kind of things made a difference. But it was more me personally. So, what was your goal? Did myself. you did you have a goal? With, no, were, were, you were. I mean, you're getting yourself into this amazing shape, yeah. and was it thinking this is going to make me the best rugby player that I can be, or it, or what? It was. It was. It was the pursuit of. You know, I had an objective, and the next thing was to trial for this and to get better. Right. And it was because I'd never done it, and and then once once you. It's a perpetuation thing. So once you actually start getting results, obviously I would always recommend to someone have a game plan. So some, for example, if someone's overweight, right, it's not just about losing weight and what the scales show. It's like, what is your perception of the end goal? Like, where would you be comfortable? Because mm. if you're never comfortable, how is anyone ever supposed to get you there? Sure. But I think because I was sort of just making headway and I was being more physical in games and school games, I was playing. And then, I, and then because I got into England under 18s a year and a half later, end up being captain of the side. It showed me that, oh my goodness, if you put this work in, it makes a difference. Then when you're on that radar, wasps start picking you up and wasps, you know, start inviting you to academy days and other clubs start talking to you. And I was going through my A-levels at the top, my my uh, AS levels, I think they've got rid of them now, and A-levels. And then I, I basically did a pre-season with wasps. Is this exciting? Is this incredible? It was. It, well, at the time it was amazing yeah. because I didn't know what I wanted to do. You know, I never wanted to be a doctor, never wanted to be a lawyer, had no idea. So I yeah. basically applied to did my UCAS form and I applied to different universities, Durham, <laughs> they sort of laughed at me. And then I applied to read history at Exeter. They accepted me. Yeah. And um, I tr- then I had a pre-season with Wasps with, you know, my heroes. Because I'll be honest with you, when I was younger, you look at younger generations now, they're so full of knowledge for their sport. They absolutely live what they're doing. Mm-hmm. So they love their, uh, you know, they all wear the kits. They all get into it. They've got access to social media. I was oblivious to sports teams until about 13, 14, when my dad started to support Wasps. I then started to go to every home game mm. and every away game. So I would come out of school on the weekends and start watching it. Then I started getting idols and heroes like Lawrence Dalio, Joe Worsley, Simon Shaw. And then because of the beauty of rugby being very different than football, that the sports stars are still quite accessible, you got to meet these heroes. So then I had some people to look up to, and I was like, this is amazing. How were so you with them, by the way? Uh, well, I... So I have a great expression for, for super fans called nauses because ultimately they're quite nauseating. They'll, they'll come up to you and they'll tell you, you know, well, listen, I'd be playing for England if it wasn't for a knee injury oh, I had. Oh, they all know those. Yeah, all yeah, that yeah, stuff, yeah, right? Yeah. And I remember saying to Joe Worsley after my first year at WAS and some kids would drive me mad for an autograph and something happened. I said, oh, God, these kids are so boring. And he went, well, I tell you what, I just remember this. When I was coming up, there used to be this horrible big-nosed kid that used to come out of nowhere, always be asking us what we're eating, could we have kit and sign autographs? Mm. I was like, oh, God, he sounds awful. Is he around here now? And he went, it was you, mate. (laughs) So just appreciate what you've got. And that kind of, I suddenly realised, you know what, I was very privileged to have that. So it it was a good wake-up call, a slight moment of arrogance on my part, to the point that I was very lucky that people were interested. And because of that... I was a super fan. You know, Lawrence's mum, God rest her soul, was brilliant. I used to meet her after games, give me bits of Lawrence's old England kit. I was walking around BT selling that jackets. Lawrence was like, obviously very kindly humouring me. Um, And then I got a pre-season with them. Then I played a game 
Then I went back to school, which kind of ruined my last year of school because I'd had this taste of professional sport. I'd been hanging around with the creme de la creme of, of rugby. Mm. And then I went back to, to, to school by rugby. I finished that, did my A-levels. Um, and then I joined Wasps in the summer and just to give it a try for one year to see how I get on. 19 and a half seasons later, I was still doing it. And and that is that is essentially how it happened. There was never one moment or an epiphany where I want to do it. It was, while I'm in it, I'll do the best I can. So while I'm trying to do something, I will dedicate myself to it. And that's always been the mindset. It's never been a long-term goal. But once I got to about 21 and there was a bit of a, a, a sense of I could maybe play for England, I wanted that. Mm. And I didn't just want one cap. I wanted 50 caps. I didn't want 50 caps. I wanted 100. And then you want the Lions. And then you want to play in different clubs. Then you want the Barbarians. Then you And, and, and that is how my mind works. It, but there was never some grand plan. There was never a, a projection. I I don't know what I would be doing if I hadn't done that now because I just I just had no other interest sure. because nothing sparked my, my flame like, like that. Well, it worked. Coming up next, we get on to James being picked for England which knowing him, he's never going to go exactly to plan and the first of 77 England caps in front of a packed Millennium Stadium in the Six Nations against Wales. All coming up next on My Sporting Life with James Haskell. My Sporting Life with James Haskell on Talk Sports. It's 2003 and James, you're incredibly fit, incredibly dedicated and although you're still only at school, you make your professional debut for Wasps, uh, which was in France, wasn't it? Yes, I was actually playing against um, Clermont Ferrand, it was called, and I was uh, 17 at the time. I got, um, they read the lineup up, and I was in a back row with Lawrence Delalio. And I never forget before the game, Lawrence Delalio, kind of, with, you know, he's a you know, jutting jaw, big bravado, big sniff that he says, you know, talks like it's got a bit of a, it's weird because he went to Ampleforth, but he's sort of a mockney geezer, you yeah, know, yeah. you'd think he was a feature in EastEnders if you weren't careful. <laughs> and he, and he, you know, he's like he's out like a star out of lock stock, two smoking barrels. And he went, Listen, Hask, if it kicks off today, mate, I need you right next to me. Right. right. If anyone if, if if there's a fight, I need you there. So yeah. I was like, Yes, Lawrence. Right. And did, did you think yes, Lawrence? Yeah, I was like, I did think yes, Lawrence, okay. but I was also like, I'm not sure I've got a skill set quite if it kicks off. Bear in mind, yeah, that public school boys, they like to think they're hard, but not really from the mean streets of okay. anywhere. Do you know what I mean? The mean streets of Harrow's not yes. really <laughs> Uh, of Windsor where I was born doesn't yeah. quite have the same you know um, sort of kudos as South London yeah it's you know not I mean? Peckham is it it's no. not Peckham no, no. so I said this to him and I was like you know yeah yeah no problem and if it does kick off I was like I'm not sure what to do so anyway mm. uh, Phil Greening uh, tackles Oriel Rougerie into touch right and Oriel Rougerie actually sued Phil Greening because of this because he said that he forearmed Oriel Rougerie in the throat and yeah. damaged his throat this is kicked off in the sideline Lawrence is punched some bloke. So I've stood there and gone, well, he's punched someone. So I've turned around and punched this French guy <laughs> right in the face. I haven't done anything. And this French guy hasn't moved. He's turned around and just punched me straight back. And I used to have a, like a brace on the inside of my teeth after yeah. my parents spent a fortune on, on orthodontic. <laughs> and this brace just went ping yeah. straight out my mouth. I sort of wheeled away dazed. The whole thing kicked off into the stand. The physios got involved. My mum, I saw this French guy hit me. She's trying to go over the stand to nut him. It's all sort of kicked, it's all kicked off. But that was kind of my yeah. first my first taste of it. And I was punching people, I'm not sure why, all because Lawrence told me that I had to do it. So that is a proper baptism of fire. Oh, yeah. That well, was the baptism of fire. It was. And, it, and then... Um, did you enjoy it? I did, but it, it was a massive wake-up because I played that game. Then I went back to back to Wellington to play in the last season, uh, last year of school. Yeah. And I realised what a, what a golf that was. You know, bear in mind that was a pre-season game and I was off the pace, out of breath, got filled in, 
didn't have the skill set, didn't know all the moves. And, you know, I then was like, wow, I've got a long, long way to go. So uh, Warren Gatlin is the coach of this time. Yes, is that right? Is, yeah, so, yeah. so I, I know that there's certain coaches that are huge influences on you and the, yeah. they, they all seem, you know, very similar if you don't mind. Yeah. I mean, if I think of Warren Gatlin, so did he take you under his wing and think, you know, this kid is going to go somewhere and how long was it? After that game in France, then you made your way into the first team and you were playing regular, regular well, I, first team rugby. I'd say around 19 was when everything started to, to, to kick on. And Gats was a, was a huge influence. I'd say Sean Edwards even more so. Yeah. Uh, for two reasons. You know, Sean was very cutting. You know, be like, mate, mate, listen, Hass, mate, there's too many mistakes around you, kid. If you can't pass, just run. And I was mm. like, Sean, I think rugby players need to be able to pass. <laughs> And, but he was great because he was such an emotional energy giver. He was a coach that constantly wanted to work on himself. And he, he taught me to be super aggressive, super physical, and, and really helped me achieve what I was going to do in, in, in perfect unison. If it wasn't for them as well, they loved my character. You know, if I'd gone to Leicester Tigers early on in my career... I mean, Martin Johnson would have killed me, Lewis Mead would have killed me, and I would have never played again. Yeah. Wasps allowed me to have a personality and to work hard. And I think it was the perfect storm because if I'd been to any other club, I wouldn't have made it either. Um, so 2007, I mean, it was a huge year for you, wasn't it? Because England, I know that you'd, you you mentioned that as well. You played under-17s, under-18s, under-19s. You, you, didn't you play at Wales as well, didn't you? I did, yeah. I did I did Wales under-18s under at the same Keeping time. Keeping your options England. open at all times? Well, I did because I basically... You had two age, two age groups under 18s. Right. And, and I'm actually Welsh qualified, Irish qualified and Scottish qualified. But everyone always takes great delight. We all are somewhere. Yeah, right? sorry. Yeah. But always takes great delight in telling me that I wouldn't have got into any of these teams if I was. <laughs> but I remember that I did Wales trials and England trials and I got a phone call. Like, right, James, it's, uh, it's Trevor here, right? It's unbelievable. You know, you've been, you've been selected. We can't wait to, for you to, you know, to come down to training. Uh, see you, in, you know, in, in a couple of weeks. And I was like, oh, thanks very much, Trevor. It's amazing. And I got a phone call from England. You know, James, you know, great honour, lovely, you know, re- yes. welcome to, you know, England scenes. and I told my dad and my dad was like we're going to have to make a decision you've got two years at England under 18s as opposed to one at Wales you're more English you know what's the story so I remember calling up I was like hi um, Trevor it's James Hasker Here's, uh, look I, I I just need you to know I'm in the England squad I don't understand James what do you mean I was like well <laughs> I'm I mean, it's got well, but, but you're Welsh, James. The whole time we've seen you, you're Welsh. You've been training the whole time. I was like, look, I'm going to go with England. Yeah. Like, well, make sure you never, ever, ever come back to Wales, will you? So I, yeah, and that was it. And I, and I upset them. Well, the irony is, is that the debut was at the Millennium Stadium, wasn't yes. it, for England? Now, was it everything that I would imagine it to be? You make your England debut, you're there, and the Welsh screaming, singing fans well, around you. What was it like? I'll t- tell you the first thing. So everyone has this expectation when you get pulled. Up, called up for the national side that um, perhaps a silver salver arrives with a footman with a, with an invitation on it and you open it and you're like you know you know James you know delight the pleasure it. of you in the yeah, English squad yeah. this is how I found out I was in the English squad I was driving out the car park of um, Wasps and a, a player called Tom Palmer used to live on the on the training ground yeah. and he shouted out the window an expletive I won't mention but he said oi something you're in the England squad check your email. And I get, I can because on radio I can't, I can't say. But I, my email at the time was not particularly savoury. It was one of those ones, like a Hotmail account that you used to have. It's in one of my books where you thought it'd be funny. Not even my mum would send me emails on this yeah. address because she couldn't bring herself to do it. Right. And it was all spam. I logged in there, and lo and behold, there was an email that said to whoever it may concern, you know, you've been um, selected for training down in Bath mm. uh, for the game versus um, France. Yeah. 
um, in the Six Nations 2000, uh, 2007. And I looked at it and I thought it was a wind-up, but it was like martincorrie at gmail.com, Johnny Wilkinson at Hotmail. These aren't the real emails for you, for you nuts to start emailing <laughs> I'm them. I'm sitting there. I know, no, I know. I thought I'm going to get Johnny Wilkinson people, on this yeah, show. People on the radio are like, really, really, really? It's like, no, you keynotes, absolutely not. So so anyway, I read it and I, lo and behold, at the bottom of this thing was Tutna at yeah. hotmail.com. So yeah. I... Um, and it said drive down. And so I took my gran- my nan, well, it was my car, but it used to be my nan's Vauxhall Astra. And I, yeah. I set off several days to get down to Bath because it didn't really have the power. And I got down there and um, Brian Ashton met me in the car park. Mm. And I was like, oh, fair play, Brian Ashton's mm. come out. And he's <laughs> he's come up to, he's like, James, um, really excited to have you down here. Couldn't be more excited for you to make the England squad. Big week for you. Mm. Let me explain how it works. Right, so you come in on a Sunday evening. So I've got a meeting tonight, right, Monday, huge training day. Mm-hmm. Right, meeting Monday evening and then the biggest training day of your life, Tuesday morning. And at lunchtime, we decide on the team and then we start training on the on the Tuesday. Yeah. Right, all to play for. Sure. Look after yourself. So Ooh. I was like pumped. Brilliant. I was like, yes, I'm in the English squad. So I got my kit, my new wheelie bag, and I walked into reception like, bam, down and I was like, this is amazing. I'm on fire. Walked up to the receptionist and I went... She went, name? I was like, you obviously know it. <laughs> she was like, I don't. I was like, okay. They do now, though, but back in yeah, the day, yeah, they didn't. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm only joking. And they, um, they, she goes, I said, Mr. Haskell. She yeah. went, all right, James Haskell, typed it in. And she went, oh, um, just stay in the two nights, is it? <laughs> and I said, I went, what? She says, it says you're checking out on Tuesday. Yeah. And I was like, wait, run it again, love. <laughs> yeah. Because you could say love back in the day. Run it again, love. Typed it in. She went, now it says you're checking out Tuesday. And that's how I discovered that I was in the England team from a bloke who lived in the training ground and then how I discovered that I wasn't in the selection oh by the hotel receptionist. And if you and that's what and people at the pin, pinnacle go, that's what professional sport is. It must be all professional. That's genuinely how I found out. So then I went back the following week. Yeah. And she went, oh, you're, you know, when I checked in, she went, oh, you're, you know, checking out Friday, is it? And I was like, well, I'm obviously in the team. Then made the debut, made my debut. And the Millennium Stadium, I had no expectation. I just ran out for the warm-up, all the flame cannons. Then the Welsh come out, the whole place erupts. It gives me goosebumps now talking Ooh. about it. And you turn to face your crowd and you see all these people in front of you. And you can see your family where you're giving them tickets and stuff. And you look there and you, the national anthem goes. And you're, you either think, am I going to... You know, defecate myself, or am I gonna? Am I gonna? You know, d- deal with it. I could not stop smiling. So I, I, I sort of sat there and uh, I couldn't stop smiling. I was like, "Wow, this is why you sacrifice every day off, every holiday. Why you dedicate your life. Why you don't eat that meal. Why you don't drink that drink. Why you want to give up your time. This is what it's about. This moment here, eighty thousand people. England, well, the side that did so well turned the tables on France. The core remains. Joe Worsley moves over to number eight in the first cup. James Haskell at six. And then we played the game and we were we were behind. And I'll never forget, we were five points behind with 15 minutes to go and we were five metres from the their trainer. Magnus Lund uh, was playing back row. Made a half break, almost fell on the line. The crowd was so loud, it was like an oppressive force. And everybody always talks about the 16th man. I'll be honest with you, fans. Of, of It's a bit tongue-in-cheek. It's often rhetoric. Mm. It's like, yeah, the fans were great today. Yeah, if you're at Twickenham, they're very corporate. Yeah. So if things are going well, they're great. They're a bit they're, they're like sort of a fair weather. You know, if things are going badly, sure. you can't hear them. They're all like muttering into their pints of Guinness. Yeah. In Wales, because 
these other sort of countries are allowed to be nationalistic and, and, and you know, because if you have a St George's flag in the UK, you're immediately a leader of the sure. BNP, whereas all these guys can dress as tulips, as paddies, as, as, as mm. wear, the, you know, as St Patrick's Day, as, as wear kilts. We dress up like St George. Everyone's like, oh, racist. Yeah, yeah. So, so you have <laughs> yeah, this yeah. kind of thing and they are cheering so loudly that it was so oppressive that I couldn't think. I couldn't even focus on what I was doing. And it was, and it was so, you were like, wow, it's discombobulating. And then we lost, we sadly lost the game. But that for me was a bug. It was like. You played well though, didn't you? I did all right. I did all right. I mean, listen, I played, I, 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 it was the first time that an all club, a same club back row had started. Myself, Joe Wersey, Tom Reese, all at Wasp. And that was it. And the rest was history. And then I didn't get into the 2007 World Cup off the back of that. I thought it was. They, They chose some other people. And I then didn't play again until 2008. Um, actually, I played a 2007 warm-up game against France at Twickenham, where Sebastian Chabal ran over Nick Abendanon, ended Nick Abendanon's mm. tournament, and, and started the journey of, of Chabal, being the icon of that particular World Cup. Um, and in 2008, I was back in the mix. And, and from 2008 to 2019, I was, I was there the whole time, really, in and out a couple of times where they experimented with a few other players. We found the next, we found the next Richie McCaw. <laughs> Turns out they hadn't found the next Richie McCaw and they were like, oh, do you still got James Hassel's number? All right, well, we'll him out again and, and round and round we went. Still to come. James leaves Wasps to play in France and Japan and he's two disastrous World Cups with England. All coming up next on My Sporting Life with James Haskell. My Sporting Life. Paul Coit in conversation with James Haskell on Talk Sports. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is plushcare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. My Sporting Life. Paul Coit in conversation with James Haskell on Talk Sports. So, James, you've been Wasp's youngest ever player, and after missing out on the 2007 World Cup, you are now regularly playing for England, but there's a sting in the tail to come at Wasps, and we'll talk about that in just a second. But firstly, is there a huge difference uh, that you've got to get used to from playing domestic rugby to playing for England? 
There, there is. I think that's what Eddie Jones has found um, as England coach. One of the hardest things is that you develop these professional standards with your in, international team, and then you all go back to your clubs, and all clubs have different standards of what they think is acceptable, what's hard work, what's high performance, what's not. And that, I think that's one of the biggest fundamental issues with, without getting on my soapbox, with. English rugby mm. is the clubs and everybody is all pulling their own directions. They're all self-serving. They don't care about the national team. Whereas in New Zealand, having played there, everything about that league is about making the All Blacks better. The off-field stuff's in sync. The players' values are in sync. And so you always have that drop-off in standards. I I was very lucky because Wasp, a lot of the Wasp players were with me in the England squad. Yeah. And apart from the Leicester clique that kind of were dominant at that period of time, we were the second most dominant team. And so it was a very different approach. But actually... I was lucky because Wasps at that time were the most professional premiership club, mm. you know, without bar none. And they developed the whole periodized training. They were into supplementation. They were into high performance, into rest periods, into training for only 45 minutes. Where a lot of these other teams were doing two-hour training sessions. We would, and that's how we'd win the premiership. We'd come fourth and then just batter everyone in the yeah. final leagues and then win it. And everyone's like, well, that's not fair. You're like, listen, guys, we're just playing to the rules. And that's what we did. So... So 2009, you left though. So, I did. So why did you go? I left because um, I was hugely underpaid at Wasps for a long period of time. And I know it's vulgar to talk about money. but That's also, fine, but, but, but compared to the other players? Yes, or? oh no, compared to everybody. So yeah. so I was playing for England on, you know, I would have been the lowest paid player for England for, in about, for about five years in a row. Wasps used to trade off the fact that if you stayed with them, you'd win things. That's yeah. how you did it, right? Yeah. And they had Lawrence Delalio, you know, Simon Shaw, Alex King, Fraser Waters, Josh Lucy, Stuart Abbott, all these kind of... Of, you know, heroes of the game, mm. and we'd win everything. But when they started, that those guys used to retire. They didn't recruit anybody. They were badly managed financially off the field. They yep. almost went bankrupt about eighteen times. And so, it took me two years to negotiate my contract. Then a guy called Steve K- Hayes came in, and he's like a mate of mine. But he came in. He got eight of us in a room, got Rafael Ibanez to tell us how bad other clubs were and how good Wasp was. <laughs> it handed this individual sealed envelope, said he's refusing to pay agents' fees. And we've got 24 hours to decide on his offers. And this offer was half of what it had taken me two years and a boatload of trouble to get to. Wow. So I got all the team together. Like, and my dad had given me this analogy that the Friends cast, the Friends cast used to individually negotiate their contracts yeah. and some would be paid more. Mm-hmm. When they got together as a collective, they said, listen, you renegotiate as one body. Of course. You can't lose us all. Mm. So I got all the troops, a bit like a union leader in a room. I got Tom Reese, got everyone in the, in the room. You were Joey Tribbiani. I was Joey Tribbiani. Okay, well, <laughs> yeah, yeah. I'm obsessed with food and women, but at a time, but I had slightly more intelligence than his character. But I, I was sort of the rabble rouser and yeah. I. Got everyone together. Tom Reese folded in, in 0.3 seconds because they'd often offered him the captaincy. So fine. he didn't want to rock fine. the boat. So fine. I was like, don't hold it against him. Fine. Um, another player wanted to leave. Um, and, the, and there was eight of us left. And I said to him, listen, they're going to put pressure on us. They're going to try to divide us. They're going to bully us. But if we stay together, they can't afford to lose us all. Um, and, and eventually, after wearing a few guys away, Tom Palmer left to go to, to, to San Francisco. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, I held out. And, I, and I, once I was allowed to start talking to other clubs, I went to Ospreys in in Wales and and and, and I was really keen on that because Alwyn Jones was playing there. I played against him at lots of age group. He was a high performance guy. Loved his extras. Loved you know had the same mentality as me. I thought brilliant. Jerry Collins, RIP, was playing there. The whole Welsh team was that Ospreys team at the time. Incredible, great setup. Mm-hmm. Uh, I then got to talk to Stade Francais and Max Cuisini, yeah. the owner, the you know one of the greatest owners in rugby history, um, asked me to to come and meet him. And I looked at the team sheet, Sergio Pariso, Juan Hernandez, Dimitri Sarzeski, Julian Dupuy, Pierre Rabadan, um, to name a few, Pascal Pape. I was like, mm. well, 
in Paris. They play in pink shirts, they do naked calendars, they live the app, they're known as the Playboys of France. Surely there is not a better you know, synergy between me and them. So I went and met them. They offered me more money than I could have ever dreamed of in wow. comparison to what I was on. And I, I looked at it and I went, you know, if I'm going to test myself and I've had aspirations to be a great rugby player, why not go to France? Because in at Wasp, we lived for those Heineken Cup weekends. We lived for those things. I got to play that every single week. Mm-hmm. You know, at Wasp, when you played Toulouse or Toulon or Castro, that was big. That was me every single week, travelling around Paris, playing with these utter superstars. I, my, my journey into work was, I lived two streets down from the Arc de Triomphe in this incredible house. I used to drive wow. past um, you know, the Champs-Élysées, uh, past the Eiffel Tower on the Périphérique into the Bois de Boulogne. We would sit and have big lunches. We would travel around, the, around Paris and it was, it was amazing. Oh, it's beautiful. And I left and I had no regrets and then I got a phone call halfway through my second year. Sean Edwards was like, mate, we want you back, we, you know, and I said, look, mm. my journey's not finished yet. I'd love to come back, but I want to do more. I wanted to stay at Stad. Unfortunately, that didn't work out because, unfortunately, the owner sort of got caught up in one of those scams and ended up selling it to these business people with absolutely no money. Yep. He got stitched up, which is very unfortunate, sold to a SIM card giant who wasn't prepared to pay. I then was like, look, I want to do Super 15. If you do Super 15, you've got to do Japan because the seasons don't line up. Mm-hmm. And... And that's what I did. And then after those times, I, I signed a deal with Wasps. And my first experience at Wasps was I came back to a club that was utterly broken. Thinking, Why did you go back there? Because I'd already signed the deal with them. And, they, and honestly, they off, they, the, the point was if they'd paid me what I'd wanted in the first place and never would have left, they ended up paying you know, double what I wanted for yeah. me to get me back. And, and, and I was like, do you know what? I was comfortable. I was like vindicated. I was like, this is fine. I, and once the thing about leaving Wasps was they always said, if you leave Wasp, you never make it. And at that time, it was true. Mm. People had left. I remember, I'll never forget, Warren Gatlin came in one day and said, right, this player, player X, he's not welcome at the training ground anymore. He doesn't want to play for us next year. He's not signed, so he can get away. And he created this culture of, like, if you're on the outside, you're never welcome. And it basically, no one had ever left and made it. And that was the greatest incentive to me. And I went to Stad. I played every single game for England, never missed it, yeah. m- m- missed it, went round the world and came back. And they paid double what I wanted. To, and, I, and I came back and I was like, boom, that's that's me. That's proven. Well, well look, I want to get to some World Cups in just a second. But but the story, though, with Wasps, see, it didn't end well either, did it? No, it didn't, it didn't end well. Um, and... It's sad, uh, but I'm you know I'm very big boy about this stuff. You know, it was sad because um, you know it didn't need to end that well, and they were vindictive in the end, and they didn't they didn't need to me. But the point mm. was, the worst thing you can do to talk to players, especially young men, is is to talk to them like they're idiots. And yeah. we were talked like we we're idiots, and I uh, I had to take them on strike because we weren't getting paid. Lads were getting injured. The training ground, so we we moved up there to Coventry. This all singing, all dancing stadium with the, the chance that we were going to have this facility. Yeah, Rico Arena. Four, yeah, Rico Arena we bought. Four years later, we're still training out of travel lodges. Travel lodges at a Tuesday, Thursday night rugby club. And they would forget to pay the generator bill for the mm. oil. Mm. So, you, so what would happen is you'd come in and you'd be training at seven o'clock in the morning in the dark, in the dark in the gym. The ice machines would all melt so everything would be flooded. The yeah. training field, the training pitches, they'd had dra- put drainage in, but they'd done it on the cheap. So they flooded. So we had a full-term grounds, but we couldn't train. So we oh. were on AstroTurfs at school. None of the bills were paid. I didn't get paid my image rights for a year and just went on and on and on to the point where I had to take them all on strike. And then instead of listening to us, they just spent all their time trying to find out who the ringleader was. Oh. And then and then it just went round and round and round. And, 
you know, the, the point is, the reason why no one, I wrote this book, and the reason why no one ever came out and challenged it, because it's all true. Mm. But the final piece de resistance to that was that at the, at the end of season thing, I'd done 12 years at WAS. They put me on a table out by the bins for my leaving thing, and they sat me with, sat me with people. And, and to do my leaving thing, they got me up on stage with Mark Durden-Smith, with another player called Guy Thompson, who I absolutely love, he's a mate yeah. of mine. Yeah. Gave me 30 seconds on stage to say goodbye to me after 12 years. Asked him one question, asked me one question, gave me a framed photo of me, photos of me over the years and sat me on my way. And I was like, that's what you get for 12 years. I know and lots of fans go, well, when I leave my business, no one still contacts me. I was like, no, no, no. You haven't given your body, your soul to your job. Like I know people work hard, but I've literally bl- sweat, sweated and bled for this um, for this team and to, and, and the owner knew exactly what he was doing and did it and it, that was my, my my final thing with Mark Dernan-Smith making some rubbish joke I love Dernan he's amazing mm. but some cheap joke with Guy Thompson on stage and he knew exactly what they were doing and I was like fair play if that's what you want to do I've never been back never been invited back never spoken to them and the last time I went there the bloke came out of his box and was giving me evils and I was like what <laughs> the mistake he makes is that when in real world a lot of times when you work for business, you have a teacher-pupil relationship. Like, mm. you don't rock the boat. <laughs> I don't work there anymore. Like, yeah. I don't, I, I don't yeah. care. Give me evils all the want. There's nothing you're going to do about it. So it's a bit sad. But then I got to Northampton, and actually, they made up for it. They welcomed me like I'd been there the whole time. Not yeah. n- not necessarily all the fans, because some of them were like, And well, you I, got the respect, I guess. You- I did. And from the players, and I had a great time, and I got to hang around, and they looked after my family. And I was like, wow, amazing training facilities, wonderful club. And once the fans realised they hadn't paid me any money to come there because they thought I was like some washed up player that they'd spent a fortune on, yeah. I was on nothing. But I only went there just because I wanted to play and, and get in for England. Unfortunately, that didn't work out. But it works out in the end. And do you know what? I'll always have a fondness in my heart for, for Wasp, but I'm very good at kind of um, compartmentalising. And while I've told the story today, that's the first I've thought about it in a period of time. Like a rolling stone. If there was a 15 of the most capped England players of all time... James Haskell would be in there. More on representing his country, the England coaches he worked with, and two disastrous World Cups. I'm Paul Coit, all coming up next on My Sporting Life with James Haskell. My Sporting Life, Paul Coit in conversation with James Haskell on Talk Sports. So, James, 77 caps, and if there was a 15 of the most capped England players of all time, you be in the starting line. That is incredible. That's yeah. not bad going, is it? It is not bad you going. You must be proud of that. I am proud of that. Considering once someone once said, I can sum up the problem with English rugby in two words, James Haskell. Oh, and that was the bottom. Of, that was the bottom of a Guardian article as well. But people, I don't know the political spheres that each paper writes into, so you never know what, I can't remember what, sure. what, what, you know, there's a great thing out of, um, Yes, Prime Minister, where he says, you know, the Times are read by the people who run the country, the Telegraph's read by the people who think they ought to run the country, the Guardian thinks it's read by people who, uh, you know, people who think other people are running the country. I don't know what it means, but essentially people think I was rubbish. Well, that's nonsense. 2011, um, let's go to the World Cup then in New Zealand. Uh, Martin Johnson was the manager, World Cup winning captain, of course. Should have all worked going down, and it was, well, <laughs> what was it? An utter debacle from start to finish. Basically, it started badly and ended badly with the point of a hotel maid making up a load of allegations yep. against myself and Dylan Hartley, which proved to be utter nonsense. We got fined about 20 times for having too many Nike ticks on our bags, wearing Opro gum shields. Manu decided it was a great idea to jump off a ferry. Um, I mean, it just got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. We lost... Uh, Nick Easter was supposed to be playing and then hurt his back, bungee jump. It was just... It was awful. And then we had one day where we had a team day out 
And I remember they went, listen, we want you to take Sky and Getty with you, yeah. the, the photographers on your day off. And I said, John, I don't think it's a good idea. Mm. He's like, you'll do as you're told. And I said, listen, I don't think you should do it. He goes, listen, I'm not arguing with you. Mm. It took us to, on a day, we did the big four, helicopter ride, uh, canyon swing, uh, whitewater rafting, I think, and um, something else. And they just took all the photographs, filmed it. As soon as that happened, and Mike Tyndall's thing happened, yeah. um, where he got, you know, where he got wrongly accused. Um, it just turned into Stingle, uh, Tyndall's stag do. And it just went round and round. They used all the images. It was awful. We were persona non grata and we turned back, came home into a private terminal at the airport. And we were labelled the worst English touring side of all time. Uh, bar, you know, beyond anything that was ever happened. Was any of this fair? Or uh, yeah, I, I think, um, you know, it was all fun and games until there's, there's a great movie called The Inbetweeners movie. And yeah. there's a guy called Simon on it and he sees his girl on the beach and he's on this ferry and he gets drunk. And he's like, I'm going to swim. And he goes, you can do it. And he jumps off this boat and it's like, you know, it's te- everyone's cheering. Yeah, Simon, Simon. And so 10 minutes later, he's only 10 foot away from the boat. And you're like, oh, my God, he's actually going to drown. It was like that. I was down below. Manu, I saw the shadow fly past. I was oh, like, what's that? No. And I just heard a, ch- you know, everyone needs to get out the water. There's a man in the water. There's a man in the water, please. And it was like this going off. And I went up. Who the hell has jumped off the ferry? Yeah. Manu in his pants. And I was like, lads, oh. why? Why has he done that? And they're like, oh, is this we in the middle of the World Cup? No, this was at the end. This is right. after we'd lost. Oh, that's okay. And somebody, yeah, yeah. someone had said to him, I'll bet you, I bet you won't do it. And he was like, I oh, will. And you're like, and he jumped oh. in, and then he then got arrested by the police. And that just finally ended it, and to the point where, and then the worst part of it was there was a lot of infighting at the RFU, and they asked all the players to review the World Cup. And Ooh. I said, listen, I've got my own drama. I'm not reviewing anything. Yeah. I'm not. But loads of lads reviewed it, and they slated everyone. And then, the, and then the RFU got it leaked. And the whole thing fell apart. And Martin Johnson, who actually, I think if he'd been allowed to choose his own, or had started from a blank canvas, done what he was supposed to do, and just be a director of rugby and manage everything, he would have been brilliant because he's a fantastic man, an incredible leader, an inspirational guy. But basically, for a number of reasons, it, it didn't work out. And he got thrown under the bus with his coaching staff. And it's really unfortunate because rugby lost an incredible mind. Sure. Um, but it was the worst thing. And then obviously Stuart Lancaster came in and had to re-educate the British public and the players on the values of playing for England. They had to be, we had to be seen to be white than white. So Martin Johnson goes, Stuart Lancaster comes in, and 2015, the World Cup is in England. Now, obviously, huge expectation. England pulled with Fiji, Wales and Australia. You managed to beat Fiji, but lose to Australia in the final pool game, which knocks you out. But it's the loss in the middle against Wales. 26th of September at Twickenham, that was the turning point. Now, could it have been different? 28-25 down, three minutes left on the clock. And England get a penalty to tie up, but the decision is made to go for the line-out and try and win the game, which proves to be a mistake. And they go for the corner. England go for the corner. They go for the win. A draw still leaves both of these teams in a precarious position. Can you talk me through what happened and whether it should have been different? So, look, I've got a lot of friends um, who are still playing in that situation. I will say, and I said this at the time, and I can tell you it's not Chris Robshaw's fault one bit he took the can for something that was not his fault you know um and you know i don't want to go into it more than that well this is a penalty isn't it and, and it's, it's a, like do, do you kick do you to, kick to for go for the yeah. draw or or maybe go let's for the put win. it this way <laughs> um, roll this the get, dice this is gonna get me in trouble i'd say this uh there weren't a lot of people putting their hands up to kick right so 
if you're not going to look to kick and no no tea came on from the sidelines, no one no one recommended anything and Robbo looked at his options and just went, I'm going to go for the corner and score a try. That's what I'm going to do because nobody else wants anything to do with it. Yeah. And because of that, he made a decision. And, you know, in any other game, a tee would have come on the field and it would have run it on and made his decision for him. But uh, the kickers, I don't think, felt all of them. Mm. There was a plethora of them on the field, decided they couldn't have a go with it, and they decided to go for touch. And it Robbo, wasn't easy, was it? It wasn't easy. No, it wasn't. And Robbo went to, um, went to the corner and got absolutely hammered, so much so that when we played um, England versus Wales at Twickenham again under Eddie Jones, once that game finished, he sat in the, in the change room in tears. It just in pieces that we'd won and he'd buried his demon and he'd mm. done it and he'd, and he'd buried the hatchet because I think it was an awful time of life and everybody dug him out and put him every meme, everything, you know, how do you not do this? Thank you, Chris Roger. Sure. And, he, and he got stitched and he got stitched and carried the can and he doesn't deserve it. And it was nobody's fault because we didn't execute what we were supposed to do. But I said, there were not a lot of people putting their hands up and the coaches, if I was in the coach's box, I'd be mic'd up. I would have run, I would have got that medical, that water boy guy on to run that tee on and just giving it to them. Yeah. But he didn't do it. Everyone was looking around at everyone else and it's the same, it's the same thing in those situations. It's not, it's nobody's fault because there's no guarantee he would have made the kick or anything. Mm. But, you know, it was not as bad as everyone says it was. And, you know, he he had to bury his demons and, and that, I think he still wears that now. And, it's, you know, and that's, the, the beauty and horrific nature of, of professional sport. Well, well, let me ask you this. What happened afterwards when you went into the dressing room afterwards? <laughs> well, I, that was, I actually came on for Billy Vinopoli because he got his injured. I mean, I, I mean, everyone, it was like desolation. It was mm. desolation in that change room, but we knew if we could beat Australia. And then I wasn't involved in Australia and we went and had that week and I was in the stand. And when we got absolutely humped and um, I can't remember what the name of the tent, a Foley for, for Australia was on fire. Mm. And they absolutely destroyed us, beat us. I remember sitting in that change room and I just, I ran out that stadium, got into the car, dri- drove, well, got driven back to the stadium. I remember being in the shower and my wife was in, the ch- in my room and I just walked in and I was like singing a song going like, we've, I won't say what we're mm. saying, but I was essentially, we've, we've messed this up really badly. And I was like, wow, this is going to get bad. Because having had 2011, home soil, all this pomp, all this ceremony, this was bad. And then um, we played Uruguay. I I played, didn't play great, dropped a ball to score a try. We won. And I was like, Do you know what? Um, that's me done. Never going to play any, never play for England again. Never seen again. And, and but luckily, I, when I was playing for us, I got a phone call from a number I didn't know. And it was like, Hess, mate, Ceddie Jones, how are you? And I was like, uh, I was like, lads, come on. He's like, no, nah, mate, it's Ceddie Jones. Um, I'm going to pick the Six Nations squad. Need you in the team. I'm going to pick starting seven. I need a big game for you. Speak to you later, mate. And I was like, oh my god. First of all, I can't believe he's got my number. Secondly, he wants me to start seven. And thirdly, he's told me I'm starting in the first game. No one's ever done that to me. No one's ever told me I'm in. No one's ever called me up. And that was the start of one of the best journeys I've ever had in England. Well, he was the guy, wasn't he, for you? Yeah. And it, do you regret that, that it came late? Yes. I would. Uh, so I remember first meet, uh, one of our first meetings after a week with Eddie Jones. Myself, Joe Marler, Ben Youngs, Owen Farrell, Dylan Hartley, Danny Kerr, sitting in a, in a room in Penny Hill looking around at each other with coffee and went, wow. Then I went, and then Youngs went, would you swap the rest of your caps you had? And I had 50-something, 50 55. Would you swap the rest of them to have more time like this? I went, yeah, in a heartbeat. Every mm. single one of us agreed. Mm. And every single one of us went, whatever we do, do not mess this up. And because the environment was so good, we were treated like adults. We were, we were having fun. We were, it was aspirational. We were given everything to help us get better. Um, every single one of them started self-policing. Other young players not doing what they need to do, sort it out. Players not picking up rubbish, sort it out. People not doing their homework, sort it out. People not playing with attention, sort it out. For once, that's what it was created. 
And that's why it was so good. And everybody loves to slate Eddie. But I say this, everybody slates Eddie is always on the outside. It's a bit like walking past some frosted glass and working out what's going on on the other side of it. You can guess, tattletale, but no one in that squad wants to get rid of Eddie Jones. All the media outside who know nothing about anything because they never go in and see it and don't know what they're talking about want to get rid of him. I've asked the lads, I've gone in there when there's been a bit of media hype and I've looked them in the face and said, listen, lads, no, I know I've got my podcast, Good Bad Rugby, and you know people, <laughs> people think I'm easily swayed with a bit of cash. But I said to listen, what's the story? Has he still got it? Every single man says absolutely. Yeah. Best there, best has been, the best. And it's it was the out of five coaches, and I know everybody has their one person, but out of five coaches, by far and away the best, by far and away the most professional environment of anything I've ever worked with. One of the best coaches, best men, like boom. Does he always get it right? No. You know, do we are we all fallible? Yeah. But does he ultimately have the right course of action in his mind? Is he the best person to do it? Yeah. And for me, that's all you can ask for. And it came to a crescendo, I guess, at the end. You were playing yeah. fantastic rugby and then the injury. At what point? Because this is always the most difficult thing for any elite sports person to actually face, I guess, is, you know, the career is coming to an end. So finally then, James, what, what happened with the injury? Then? Yeah, so I mean, I, I had my toe reconstructed after that second test in 2017 on my left foot. I mean, David Hayes made toe injuries not cool, but they're awful. If you actually get them done, yeah. they, they are unbearable. It sounds like it's a toe. It is, is what I mean. Yeah. Uh, but they are. They are unbearable, um, especially your big toe, because you do it for everything, balance, uh, propulsion, everything. Um, and then I, I basically stopped halfway through the season to have ankle surgery on my other ankle. By the time I came back, my toe had flared up and I was unable to play it. And do you know what the hardest thing was? Almost ment- mentally, when I got injured, it was like, oh, this is the end. This is the end. And I was like, oh, my God, I spent my whole career trying to fight these demons away. Because when you get done early, you think you can recover. Mm. But I suddenly became acutely aware of my age, what I was doing, the yeah. chance of making the World Cup. Could I do it? And I was so sad and in almost like a bit of a vortex of doom around around that. And I remember just one day I was like, I can't, I just can't do this anymore. And, um, you know, part of me thinks as if I'd taken some time away. Could I have recovered? Could I have done something, tried different? Because I, even though I... I shopped around different medical opinions when I was doing the you know I was able to do the MMA stuff and that you know mm. that's in, in some respects is more extreme but I tried some different physio at that point in time the honest answer is I just had to call it and I, and I wasn't I wasn't where I wanted to be and I wasn't enjoying it and I was sad and I was I was you know despondent what's the moment like do you is it like typing an email and going right this is now ready to go. I mean, my wife I've... says, "Yeah, my wife says I'm emotionally dead." But I, cause I didn't even cry on a wedding day, which she's never forgiven me for. But I went in to speak to the team, and I burst into tears. I yeah. couldn't speak. You yeah. know that one is. <laughs> I just, I said, lads, I can't do this anymore. I'm sorry. I'm going to retire, and that's me done. And I was in like proper, proper bawling. Couldn't, couldn't speak. And I, because I, for all the bravado and all the stuff and all the opinions, you know. The one thing that I've always taken credit in and always enjoyed is always been a good team man. And so because of that, the team stuff was the most important thing in my career. Being around those lads, dying, sort of not dying with them, but training with them, working hard with them, suffering hardship through them, the highs, the lows, the emotions, the, the laughter, laughing every day for 19 seasons. Some people at work don't laugh at all. I was laughing like 99 times a day. To have all of that and then to have to call it and not know and not know what the, you know, the unknown was, and be sad for yourself, sad that you couldn't go and do what you wanted to do, because from my knees upwards, I'm fine. Mm. My head, fine. I'm 30, you know, I was 35. To retire, to go, that's it, and, and to find something else to do, and you, your whole life had been defined by that. It's not James Haskell, the DJ at the time, or James Haskell, the coffee maker, or the digger driver. James Haskell, the rugby player. That's what it was. And so that whole emotional thing, and, and luckily, because I'd put so much time into my mental health and my psychology, meant 
than I was prepared, but still, it doesn't prepare you for everything. Well, it's some story, and it's been a great career. James Haskell, confidence man, thank you for joining me on My Sporting Life. Thanks, man. My Sporting Life on Talk Sports. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.